0: Sorry, I got to decide on which, which controversial example to give. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Simply Faithful.
1: My name is Eric. I am the pastor of Kishwaukee Community EPC near Rockford, Illinois. My name is Gray Ewing. I pastor New Valley Church in Central Phoenix. And here on Simply Faithful,
0: we like to sit down with each other and have conversations about the core truths of Christianity and life together. We like to talk with each other about those things and with other interesting people
1: sometimes as we work through matters of faith and life and ministry in the world. We're glad to have you as a part of it today, and we'd love it if you would share this episode with a friend or talk about it over drinks or something sometime. This week, Overcoming Sin. Welcome back, everybody, to Simply Faithful. Super glad that you've joined us today. We wanted to have a conversation today with you, Eric, about overcoming sin. And there's a context to this, as there almost always is to our discussions. And in particular, there is a current scandal going on in the evangelical world, and uh, that's nothing new. We don't like to name such things. We like to keep these things non-hypey if we can, these con- these conversations, to keep it somewhat evergreen. But if you're listening to this sometime in the future, then just insert the evangelical <laughs> d- scandal de jour uh, of the day. Yeah, that sadly doesn't date us at all. Yeah, sadly, that's the case. And in this current big evangelical scandal, I think people are wondering, like, how can someone who is so gifted, so mature, such a big deal be... Caught up in so much personal sin. Like, how did those two things happen and hold together? And so, on that big level, we wonder, like, what is this person really a Christian or other people that we might listen to actually Christians? Then, on an individual level, we think, well, I'm a Christian. I still struggle with sin. I want to know, like, should I expect this sin to go away? Or, um, you know, I know I'm supposed to be perfect, as my Heavenly Father is perfect, as the Scripture says, but I also know that I'm not perfect. And the Bible also says that there's forgiveness of sins. Also, we read verses sometimes like in First John, like maybe First uh, John chapter 3, verse 9, which says, that no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They can't go on sinning because they've been born of God. And so we think if there's sin in my life, we're going to probably talk about the actual reading of that verse, but if there's sin in my life, how can I be sure that I'm born of God? And how can I be sure of anybody, big picture, if we're really following God, if there's the presence of sin in our lives?
0: Yeah, I think it's worth maybe jumping in right there to name something up front, which is that the reason that this is a question that we all wrestle with is because, of course, while we have those sorts of places in Scripture, we also have plenty of places in Scripture, like 1 John 1, which tells us that if anyone says he's without sin, then he's deceiving himself. And so we constantly exist in this sort of tension, I think, where Scripture does acknowledge indwelling sin as a reality, but it doesn't sort of surrender to it or treat it as in any given instance, inevitable in the way we sometimes do, but does really try to hold out the life of Christ and holiness and obedience to God as things that we're supposed to strive for. And finding not that balance, but that place of tension, I think is really important for Christians.
1: Yeah. And this isn't so much an episode about assurance of salvation, although I think that we could definitely do that one in the future, but more of this idea of like, how do I actually engage with this? How do I actually change the sin patterns in my own life? How do I overcome it? And I want to talk about it both theologically and also practically and hopefully helpfully there at the end. But theologically, we just have to wrap our minds around what is actually going on in the life of a believer when there's sin present. Can those two things exist? And you know, to step back in time a little bit, St. Augustine talked about the four states of humanity, and uh, he mentioned these all had Latin names. I won't go into those. But he says, you know, at first we were able to sin, Then secondly, we were not able not to sin. So if you think about the Garden of Eden, we were able to sin, and Adam and Eve did sin. Then secondly, not able not to sin. What we were plunged into, the whole human race, was sinful at that point. It's worth stressing there that Augustine doesn't mean, and we never mean when we talk in
0: that category, that everyone is as awful as they could be, but simply that because of the context of our rebellion against God— since ultimately everything that isn't done to God's glory and in communion with him is in some way corrupted by or touched by sin. That's right. we're not able not to
1: sin, even when we're doing otherwise good things. Yeah, we sometimes talk about total depravity, and a lot of people have said that's not the best term. It probably isn't the best term, but what is the best term? By total depravity, we mean that every part of humanity has been affected by sin. It doesn't mean that everyone is continuously as sinful as they could be. And part of that is because... Well, all of it is because God restrains it in the world. But we did fall into this state where we're not able to not be sinners, we might say. The third state is able not to sin. You think about Christ gripping us, newness of life coming into our souls. We're able then to become more and more in the image of Christ. We're able to put off sin that so easily entangles, as Hebrew says. We're able to not sin even though we still do sin. And then the fourth state is unable to sin. So we think about the state of glory, state of perfection. Uh, when we are and everything in the world is made as it should be, there will be no sin. And so that's a helpful, I think, bookending kind of look at the person and as it relates to sin and humanity. There's a really important nuance there too
0: that I think is worth paying attention to. So when you think about us before the fall and rebellion, and you think about us after Jesus has saved us, but before the resurrection and glory. On one level, he describes this states the two way. He says, before the fall, we were able to sin, and now we are able not to sin. And of course, in one sense, both of those means we can do the opposite as well, right? You know, that it was, they were able not to sin before the fall, we are able to sin now. But the reason that he puts it that way is because he wants to stress the sort of change that's happening and the sort of reality of like what our heritage is, because for Adam and Eve, their heritage does not involve sin. Right. And their rebellion in some ways is unprecedented in terms of God's good creation. Whereas for us, of course, we have this heritage of sinfulness before the work of Jesus. And so we, while we were able not to sin, we're going to recognize that that's a sort of like pulling away from this, um, this old nature, old way of living that scripture constantly talks in terms of the old and new.
1: That's right. It's kind of a dance between, is this like a historical thing or is it like an internal thing? And I think that tension shows up, but regardless, it's a helpful metric, even if you want to pick it apart a little bit, but really we exist in, in state three, both historically and personally, a lot of our times when we're wrestling with sin, which is that we are able not to sin, but we still do sin. And scripturally, we see that if we read the book of Romans, you see that where our sin comes from. Paul is very clear that we have a sinful nature. We still have the sinful nature. We still have the old man. We still have the old reality within us. And we also have a redeemed nature. Now we are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Something new has come from from his work in your life. And so uh, these two things exist at the same time, and that causes a lot of tension within us, some of the tension that we might see in Romans 7 with Paul's wrestling with his own sin. And I think that Eric maybe has a different understanding of that. I do, passage. but we'll let that slide for now. <laughs> but most scholars and smart people in the world think that... In Romans 7, Paul's wrestling with this whole reality of I, this, the things I want to do, I can't do. The things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. You know, a wretched man that I am, please, you know, who will save me from this body of death? And the wrestling is there. you want to say anything about that? or No, we can leave it be. Other than that, I feel the need to note
0: that I don't know that most scholars agree with you, but my view is idiosyncratic enough that even the scholars that disagree with you, the majority of them probably disagree with me as well. But... With that said, let's let's go ahead and talk talk about. Yes, there is that struggle that that all Christians
1: do. You experience. agree that there is a struggle within Christians to, of do, doing things that they don't want to do and not doing things they want to do, and that that represents the kind of tension that exists with being having a redeemed nature and also a sinful nature. Oh, absolutely. Although it's also worth noting that I think that Scripture
0: often actually views that almost as two forces working on us, right? So flesh and spirit is oftentimes the way that it frames that divide. And that's not talking about like physicality and immateriality or something like we talked about last week, but that's really talking about the struggle between the old self, the flesh, meaning that sort of part of us that in Adam died and um, and the world and all of that that feeds into to tempt us still to sin. And then the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, God working as this principle within us to draw us towards himself and away from sin.
1: Yeah. I would also say that what we sometimes call ontologically, like what is true of, of our very selves, we are of two different natures, right? Because that's, we have a sinful nature that still clings on, but it's very clear in scripture that we have a redeemed nature as well. Yeah. So this is big words and a little philosophical. I actually wrestle with
0: that though. So one of the interesting features of scripture is that it does not talk of redeemed believers as sinners while it readily acknowledges that we still sin and even struggle with sin. Like, I think it, I think there's a sense in which it wants to say the new nature is really definitive in Jesus Christ, right? Like, when we're, you know, given the new birth, when we're made alive and we're dead before, like, the most essential part of us is now redeemed in Jesus. And that's why we have hope for some amount of victory and things like that, which we'll talk about. And none of that's denying the reality of, you know, the need to put off the old self and the way that sin still so easily entangles and we face temptation and all of that. But I do think there's a way in which sometimes just saying we have two natures makes it sound like you've got like the guys on both your shoulders or, you know, you've got like the two wolves inside of you. I think there's some meme I saw a little while back about that. And and it gives them a kind of equivalency, which I don't think scripture gives. It would say if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Like that's what's essentially true of you. But you are still wrestling with who you were, and who you are in as much as you're still in the world and in the body of flesh and assaulted by the devil and stuff like that.
1: I think that's a good word. And I don't know if we'd be in the exact same place if we teased it out, but I do agree that, the way that we sometimes talk about it, it makes it seem like our sinful nature and our redeemed nature are like an admixture or something like right. like they're they're trying to conquer each other. One's at sixty percent and one's at forty percent or something like that. That's not the way it is. And I think about that image. I don't even know what it is. It's an artistic image of of the body coming out of the the old self. I don't know if you've seen that before. No. That's somewhat of a helpful picture when you think about. It. It's almost like. He's shedding the old. Nature. I'm imagining something really violent, which I imagine is not actually what the image shows, but it's a little violent. It's a little, it looks kind of like the cover of Atlas Shrugged or something. You know, it's like the, <laughs> the I,
0: I in my I mind. Think we have
1: seen different covers of Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> anyway, it has nothing to do with Atlas Shrugged. Let's move on. Uh, okay. So we agree that there is a war inside of us, right? For the, yeah. Ability to sin, also the ability not to sin, and so if if it's true that we're able not to sin, the question I really want us to wrestle with theologically, just for a minute more, is how are we able not to sin? And in a sense, what victory over sin should we expect to have? Is is it always going to be a full on assault? Should we expect to have some measure of increasing holiness? Or will all of it kind of be negative until the end? Or, you know, just give us what, what comes to mind for you when you think about what kind of victory we should expect and how we're able to change. Well, before I answer that
0: question, I want to name sort of another question that gets mixed up in it experientially for people that we really need to to, to name first and kind of set aside before we have this discussion which is that regardless of how much you seem to be triumphing over sin in the Christian life or how much success or how much struggle you're having in a given area of sin, our identity always rests in Jesus Christ because of the work he's done. You know, he, the fact that we're justified by his death, we're adopted into his family, we're beloved on his behalf. And so one of the, I want to name that up front because one of the dangers as we talk about the struggle with and overcoming indwelling sin is that there's both a temptation towards despair when you're in deep struggle in a temptation towards spiritual pride when you feel like there's some area of your life that you've really seen victory in. And both of those are really temptations to get confused about your identity. And so what we are called to struggle with sin, the first thing we always need to say is that um, all of that happens within the context of the fact that we are righteous in Christ. We are loved because of Jesus. We are adopted as God's sons and daughters because of his work. And none of that really has anything to do with our struggle.
1: That's right. If we think about this, sometimes we talk about the order of salvation or something like that in the- theological terms, but we won't go into all that. But our justification, right, is set when we put our faith in Christ. Now, of course, we can walk away from that and we can in experience realize that it has not been true of us. You know, think about, again, we reference First John. They went out from us. They proved that they were not of us because they, they went out fr- from us. So it's possible To have an expression of faith for a while and then not be justified. But in theological terms, if you are in the church, you're struggling with these things, you're listening to this podcast, you you are uh, put your faith in Christ, you confess with your mouth, you believed in your heart, you've been baptized. This is your justification is secure in Christ. And what we're really talking about is the rhythm of repentance and faith. Which are also both gifts from God. So they, they come from him, but repentance and faith are the continuing actions of Christianity and how we kind of maintain our faith and our walk with God. But we don't maintain our justification. It's something that's given to us purely by God's great gift and is set by him. And our names are written in the Lamb's book of life.
0: That's right. Now to your question, how able are we to experience victory over, um, sin in the Christian life? And I want to, Part of then where I get, think this gets messy is that let me first speak in terms of a specific sin, because I think these things get fused for Christians sometimes, right? About mm-hmm. a specific sin that they're struggling with and then just sin in general. In terms of a specific sin, I think that we as Christians can expect to see a significant amount of victory in some specific sins, particularly when we're talking about outward acts of sins or words that are sinful, uh, a significant amount of victory, but that that victory does not necessarily happen quickly. And it does not necessarily happen in a clearly delineated, easy to follow process. Um, so which is to say, first of all, it doesn't happen quickly, meaning that there will often be a lot of struggle, right? It might take months or years, even if you identify some specific sin that you're wrestling against to see, um, to see that kind of change come. And it doesn't happen in a sort of like clearly delineated process, meaning this is actually something I've thought about and kind of walking with people through different struggles that they have that um, there's this idea from Malcolm Gladwell, I think that I got it called tipping points. And the idea is that you have this like sudden radical change and it's because there's all these like little gradual changes that get there and then suddenly like things seem to change pretty quickly. And I feel like I've maybe experienced at different points in my life and seen with other people too, that there's often like long seasons where you're struggling and working and you don't see a lot of growth, but there is sort of like fruit and foundations being built there that then leads to maybe a season of significant growth. But I do want to say like, in terms of a given specific sin, and there's going to be a kind of caveat, that's why I'm speaking about it this way. It isn't helpful to Christians and it isn't biblically or practically true to say, basically, you're never going to change. And I do think sometimes we slip into that kind of rhetoric, right? Of just like, oh, you know, you're just a sinner. You're just going to, you know, you know, 40 years from now, you're not going to be any farther along than you are today. And I understand the heart that that comes from, and maybe we'll touch on some reasons why as we continue. But I do think that, no, like, you know, we we ought to have a real sense of, I can, you know, using the means of grace, using the community of faith in submission to God and recognizing that it might involve a season of struggle to get there, see some like real growth in different areas of
1: life. That's right. One distinction that I'm just thinking of as you're saying that is also be aware that we're talking about personal sin. In this case, we're not necessarily talking about the effects of the fall on people. Right. And so it is it is very likely the case that those who have a severe depression, for instance, will struggle with that in a lifelong way. And it is a result of the fall, but I've known folks who have struggled with severe mental illness or things like that. And they think it's their sin that's tied up in all this stuff. And they think they never are getting better and better and better, but that is something different. that doesn't also mean that there isn't some sin involved around that, that will improve and that will over time heal. But, uh, and it's not to say also that you can't expect God to remove some of that and pray for, pray for it to be removed. But I think that's just a distinction I want to make. There's The effects of the fall sometimes weigh heavily on us and stay with us forever. That's right.
0: And also, um, I mean, I did kind of make this caveat that I should probably just acknowledge. I said kind of like in terms of actions, behaviors, words, things like that. And I said that because there are – the way sin works is you have these specific manifestations. And then the more you drill down – the sort of bigger they get, right? And so, you know, like pride and greed and envy, you know, or if you use that kind of like – It's a specific sin, but it's also very deep. Like (laughs) I'm not saying that like you can stop ever struggling with pride in your life, but if you recognize that like you are boasting inappropriately in a way that calls attention to yourself, that that behavior is one that if you sort of engage with thoughtfully and, you know, prayerfully and work against that – you might well be able to see real growth in that area. And also maybe one last note, significant victory doesn't mean that you can't fall back into the thing. It doesn't mean you can be prideful or careless in that either. Right. And so, you know, if you struggle with drunkenness and you, you know, work through the hard process of sobriety, like you can expect to see real victory, you know, and have real hope for that. Right. You're not going to be stuck in that addiction and that sin forever. But, It's also true that you're going to have to be thoughtful about like, you know, not going and having a few at a bar probably for the rest of your life, because it may well then be a thing that can, yeah, that you can fall back into.
1: Yeah. We're speaking in tensions and caveats and stuff. We all know that this is a difficult thing to wrap our minds around. Uh, But I do want to bring in some, some other scripture and another perspective on this, which is that we should absolutely expect ourselves to struggle with sin too, though, and. Fight it and have a an a, an attitude of action against it, and so this can be another pit that people fall into is they think, well, I'm just saved by grace, and therefore, you know, you know, as Paul would say, you're letting sin, you know, abound with that grace, and that's absolutely not the case. So. When you look at scripture, it's amazing if we drew out some of the verses, the violent attitude that scripture has towards sin. You know, it says, Jesus says things about like cutting off your right hand and, you know, you're plucking out your eye and there's different meanings to that we could go into. Um, Also, you know, scripture says that, you know, you haven't resisted in fighting a sin to the point of shedding blood. And some of these images that we would look at, it would be metaphorical and we need to talk about those in this individual context, but the overall message of those passages is fight sin. You know, I think about uh, Cain and Abel and Cain, you know, kills Abel, but before he does, God says, sin's crouching at the door. It it has desires for you, but you must master it. And so there has to be that approach to sin too. We have to have the mentality that this is not something that is okay for the Christian to have in their life.
0: Yeah. I think that it's really important to say in that, especially too. One of the things that happens, I think, is that people are discouraged by the struggle or the struggle being hard, right? And that, that makes total emotional sense because the struggle is hard and discouraging in that sense. But I think they're discouraged because they feel like, man, like as a Christian, I shouldn't be struggling, and there, like, the answer is, like, no, like, the very definition of a Christian is one who struggles against sin, right? The, the scary place for someone to be is when they're not struggling. <laughs> you know, that's when when you're, you're worried about the state of their heart. But, right, or overwhelmed and not believe in the gospel on the other side. That, that's right. Um, and then, and maybe coming out of that, let me also name, I, I said in terms of specific, you know, sins that we can expect real victory. There is a sense in which, in terms of sin writ large in our hearts, I don't think we're going to experience sort of like an overarching victory in this life, but a lot of the reason for that, and this is actually, it ties into that sense of discouragement is because the, the more victory you experience in certain areas of sin, the more you realize how deeply sin is invested in your heart. Um, it's a moving target. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember um, talking with a guy a while back who had to preach a sermon on one of the seven deadly sins. And and he didn't know which one he was going to preach on. And the question he was asked was basically like, which one do you not think you struggle with? And then, <laughs> and then you have to preach on that one, right? And of course, he, he realizes as he's working through that, like, oh, no, like, this is actually a real thing that I struggle with. The way The way I've heard it put is that the process of growth in the Christian life, you are becoming more like Jesus objectively, but you're also realizing more and more how far short of God's calling you actually are. Fall. And so it can actually feel like you're getting worse in some sense as you're moving in terms of sin as a whole. But that shouldn't mask the
1: real kind of victory that you are having in certain areas of struggle. That's right. And that's why it's really helpful to do this in community as well, so that other people can notice things about you. Like, for instance, you know, I never really escape the fact that I feel like I am, you know, have these certain sin struggles. But then my wife, who knows me very well, says, oh, no, there's a clear delineation from gray marriage year one and gray marriage year coming up on 13, you know, so, and she notices those things and I don't necessarily see them, but she thinks, you know, she says, oh, much gentler than you were then. And those kinds of things. But it's, uh, it's not easy for you to see when you're in the midst of it. So we need other people. There's some other changes between gray year one and year 13, but for (laughs) the sake of your pride, I won't give you grief about any of those. (laughs) There are a few changes. Yes. So to wrap up the theological discussion, Eric, and then we can move into some practical stuff. I, I really like 1 John for this. We've referenced it a lot, but I love how he says in that book, I'm writing to you that you might not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. In a way, that summarizes all that we've been saying. It, he's writing so that we don't sin. The, the, the scriptures say to flee you know, youthful us to run away and to run towards righteousness. It tells us to cut off sin. It tells us not to sin, but if we do and we do, then we have an advocate with the father who's Jesus Christ who, and that's our security. That's our hope. So moving more practically, let's just talk for a few minutes, Eric, about some ways that we can practically overcome sin. And maybe to start with, let's mention a couple ways that don't work. So if you were giving bad advice to someone in your congregation, they were like, I'm trying to overcome this specific sin, or I'm trying to be more holy or something like that. What would you not want to say to them?
0: I think the first thing is just stop is, you know, or something like that. Just, you just need to decide to not do it anymore. Yeah. It's a commitment problem. Yeah. And the reason that doesn't work is because, I mean, I guess there are certain people with certain sins who have just never tried to stop that sin. And in that place, you need to say, no, just start resisting it as a starting place. But but for people who have tried to stop and it hasn't worked, I mean, if you don't change something beyond that, like they've already done that probably repeatedly. And so it's not like you should expect the outcome this time to be any different than all the times before that they decided to, you know, stop this sin and then fell
1: right back into it. Yeah, that very quickly leads to manipulation and also shame and guilt and overwhelm. And I think it also unhelpfully sometimes encourages people that feeling badly about their sin is true repentance. Mm -hmm. You know, that I think there's a, there can be a mixture in us that's like, if I feel really badly about this, then I will, you know, be more likely to not do it next time or something Mm -hmm. like that. Thinking that the root is, is your motivation or your ability to overcome it is a sure way to let it have free grain in your life. Really, the root issue in both of those and
0: anything else we could say, I think, is that it doesn't work if you remove the the reality of the gospel from, from underlying it, which is often what happens. You end up telling people things like, well, if you do this, you could go to hell, which is not actually a gospel motivation. Anything that implicitly or explicitly ends up denying that love and delight
1: that God has in us because of Jesus Christ is going to be a bad motivation. That's right. And there are ways that we can practice uh, worldly repentance versus real repentance, which Second Corinthians 7 tells us that that's a distinction. So we'd never want to be in the position of encouraging someone just to act like they're sorry or look like they're sorry or somehow fix the perception of the problem. We want to say, no, real repentance is about the heart. And so that's really, I think, going to be the focus of what we move into next, which is, or well, what are some good answers? Like, how do we actually overcome sin? What would be a good thing to tell someone?
0: Yeah. So let me actually just start by giving what I found to be a very useful to me way of thinking about the process of actually wrestling with sin. And it comes from Dallas Willard originally, who's an author and wrote some books. And this is one of those things that I know I got from somebody. I'm not sure how similar this is to what he originally said about it, but I know that he's the one that originally gave me these categories. But, But basically the idea is that a lot of Christian calls to obedience don't understand that really obedience has to do with two things, which is the heart and your habits, that, that that it's those two levels at which true obedience has worked. So on the one hand, the heart, meaning what you really need, and this is the root thing, the, the place you have to start in the heart, which is that you actually have to have your desires changed. You actually have to view the world, view yourself, lean into life differently than you did before, and that requires a sort of heart work. And then on the other side of it, you can kind of have your heart change and still have these sinful ingrained patterns, right? You know, And and just sort of like ways of behaving that are in bondage to the flesh. So then you do also, coming out of that heart change, have to address habits in very concrete, practical ways to try to change those sort of habitual ways that you fall into sin. And the problem with a lot of Christian discussions of obedience, I feel like, is they're not nearly deep enough to really speak to the heart or they're too legalistic to really speak to the heart. But they're also not practical in the right ways to actually help people change habits either. And so they don't do anything other than just make people feel bad.
1: That's right. Yeah. And if you focus on the habits to the exclusion of the heart, you're likely uh, trying to fix it on your own power. You're likely you know, thinking that, that some method or means is the key to real change. Changing habits without the heart is exactly what the Pharisees tried to do. Exactly. Right? And that's what Jesus yeah. critiques them for doing. That's right. But only having the heart without the habits is impractical, right? Only, you know, people want to know, like, what can I be doing to, uh, to overcome this sin? And it, the truth is the scriptures talk about habits, and habits have a direct uh, correlation to change, not an indirect one. They aren't the only thing that are involved with change, but they are involved. So, yeah, so beginning with the heart – One of the things that I love to focus on when we talk about change is really just this idea of having this growing love for Christ. So there's a famous sermon by a guy named Thomas Chalmers, and it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the name alone, the sermon is great. I've read it before, but the name alone gives you the idea of the sermon, the expulsive power of a new affection. So something is expulsive, it throws it out. And so there's a new affection the affection for Christ that throws out old sin. And so uh, sin is not so much defeated in this sense, even though it's defeated by Christ, it's not so much defeated in us personally as it is displaced. We have these desires for things. We have this growing love for Christ. And suddenly those things that we used to love are not quite so as enjoyable as they used to be. They don't have the same kind of power because they're taking up less real estate on our hearts. And so Christ has set up more dominion within our inner being. Yeah, I'm actually using that sermon and the idea from
0: it on Sunday. So if you are one of the couple of people that I know listen and go to the church that I pastor, please forget everything you just heard. (laughs) Another big part of it is just, um, I think there's something to experiencing the, the presence of God, communion with God. I mean, that that would be a whole other episode to talk about sort of actually experiencing the delight and presence of God. But sin does distance us from God, right? Well, God still loves us and pursues us in our sin, like sin does create kind of relational distance for us um, with God. I do think there's a real way in which just spending time with God helps us to fall out of love with sin because we learn to enjoy that presence and communion with him in a way that actually just makes it less appealing in the sense that we're like, I don't want to do things (laughs) that cost me that sense or that
1: nearness to God that I feel in those moments. That's why it's so power, so much more powerful to have a relationship with Him to overcome sin than to just do it on your own power. Because, you know, I've met people. I had a conversation recently with someone who was kind of disconnecting from church, kind of not following the Lord. And you could just tell as they were talking to me, they knew I was a pastor you know, they were saying basically like, Oh, I feel so badly. You know, I, I, I want to go to church, but I, you know, I think I, I know I should go to church is what they said, you know? And, and there's just like when there's that sense of obligation in that relationship, um, it, it's not, the heart that's empowering. it, And so it doesn't have that same power to overcome when you want to go to the concert, when you want to go to, you know, see that person that you love, that's a different kind of want. Maybe you even need to, or you're required to, because they're your spouse or something you need to spend time with them, but it's a different kind of need than it is if it's doing out of sense of obligation. So I agree that having that heart, that love of God, it just is so powerful to overcome sin.
0: Yeah. In some sense, the battle's already lost at that point, which doesn't mean that you shouldn't fight it. And we can maybe touch on that a little more with habits, but it means that you really do need to return to those heart things if that's the place that you're at, where you feel like it's just sort of duty and discipline that's making you drag yourself forward in obedience to God. Let me say one other thing about heart stuff. And this is where I think I actually disagree with Chalmers a little bit, because he kind of discredits the core thing you want to do in your heart. Is to cultivate a desire for God and a love for God and that there is that sort of expulsive power of that new affection. But he kind of dismisses something that I think is real, which is also learning to hate sin is also a part of, um, of that, a part of that heart change, right? Mm -hmm. That recognizing the ugliness of sin and the destructiveness that it causes can really be an effective part of that. That, you know, you think about, like, I remember just years ago saying a hurtful thing to somebody and just watching their face crumble and realizing in that moment like the destructive power you that are my words have right like <laughs> and 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 sure that guilt in itself isn't enough to breed true holiness but i still think about that reality that like my words really have the power to destroy beauty in people as one of the things that then helps me to rein in my tongue and you know be mindful of the things that i say
1: yeah i think that's true one question that i really like to ask people, uh, when they're saying, how do I re-engage with the Lord? How, you know, how do I change? They've, they've maybe walked away. I I asked them, when's the last time that you enjoyed being with the Lord, you know, and what, can you remember what it was like, you know, being with him? Do you, was it a a retreat? Was it a, a specific practice? You know, what, what is it that really engaged your heart? can we start there? Can we go back to that thing, you know, and just start there because you know that it's a place where you've met him before. And that, it's just, just to get that affection going again for him. I think about, uh, first John three, which talks about, uh, seeing God. And, uh, it says, beloved, we are God's children. Now what we, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so when we see Christ, that's when we're transformed. And there's a whole rich tradition called the beatific vision that Jonathan Edwards talked about in others, uh, that when we see Christ, that's when we're really changed. And so whatever ways that we can do to see him, to stoke our affections for him, to be with him, that's what leads to heart and life change. Let's shift to habits then. And, um, let me say this
0: first. Well, I want to talk practically about some suggestions and we're probably going to give some examples of things. In my mind, the number one universal rule about habits for Christian obedience is that there aren't really universal rules for habits of Christian obedience. And I want to say that up front, because one of the ways that the church goes wrong, and this is a thing that you see in scripture, and it's part of what Jesus critiques with the Pharisees, is that there are true, wise boundaries that we might give to people, or true, wise things that we might tell certain people to think about doing in terms of behavior and to, to shape and change their habits. But that if you make that very specific thing into a new law that everybody has to follow, then you actually go beyond scripture and it becomes unhelpful. So to give an example, and I know this might be controversial or challenging for some folks because I'm going to, you know, say something is incorrect that I know some Christians have taught. But it is absolutely true if you struggle with drunkenness that you probably, as part of habit, should avoid alcohol. Like that seems like a pretty self-evident for a season or forever, depending on your wiring, right? That if you're hanging out every night at bars and getting drunk, and that's the sin thing that you need to establish, you probably should stop going to bars. That's also a situation where there's some other good counseling and support, and there's other things habitually to do. But part of that is just don't drink, right? It's probably wise. But that ought not be a law that you then impose on every other Christian. That doesn't mean that it's... A wrong rule for you to make for yourself in terms of changing habits. But when you turn that into a law, then that goes beyond scripture, then that becomes inappropriate because there are people for whom that is not helpful or that might even
1: feed into some other sin. It's a very hard balance as pastors. You know, we, we know that the desire to give people specific instruction is there and it's so easy to think like this worked for me. This was so life-changing for me. This was so influential. You don't have to be a pastor to think this. I just know that it would be so good for them. And I feel like I'm always resisting that impulse to say, this is exactly what you should read. This is exactly what you should practice. And um, it, I think it frustrates people because they're like, tell me the answers. You're the pastor, you know, like give me the way that I can grow in this. And the truth is, Yeah, it starts with the heart and and that leads into practices and they're individual. And if we start down that path, we go very quickly towards the Pharisees, which we are warned, you know, very strictly not to do.
0: Yeah. And like you said, it is a hard balance because giving people practical, I think about it in terms of positive habits, too. Like, say, spending time in scripture and prayer. Uh, It's often very practically useful for people to be given kind of a program to you know, as they embark on that, there's a lot of different programs, which is a good indication that it's a habit that we need some freedom on, Right. but that's not a wrong thing. But when that program becomes a sort of cure all tonic or when the expectation is that you're doing it wrong, if you're not doing it, or when that isn't working for you or stops working for you and you feel like you've somehow failed instead of just trying to change things up and try some other things, all of those can become destructive. But then let's drill into the idea of habits just a little bit let me name, I think the starting place for habits is that as you are struggling with sin, you need to pay attention to how that struggle plays out at a given point in time and try to name the things that were present there that were drawing you into that situation or drawing you towards that temptation or, you know, working on you in the process of that temptation. And then think about how you can structurally change the way that you are acting in order to
1: avoid that yeah those could be physical things or they could be mental things right so you know going back to the drunkenness example you can avoid the alcohol or whatever but you can also think wh- why am I doing this right now I'm sad right I am depressed right now whatever it may be and so you can name those things as well and know that there's a path towards sin and sin does you know lead us down certain ways and there there are markers along the road yeah and it can be really obvious for example there is a sort of like it's
0: it's Almost stereotypical, but, you know, the young people, the young couple struggling with sexual purity who, you know, cannot understand why when they go lay down in their bed together and cuddle up against each other and start taking clothes off, then suddenly they fall into sexual sin where you can just say, no, like, think, you know, <laughs> like probably just earlier in that process, you <laughs> should put a, a something in place to stop that. But it also happens more subtly, like there is this particular fusion of emotions that I feel in moments when I'm about to say something that I regret because I'm trying to impress someone. Mm-hmm. Like like there's this very particular set of emotions that I've come to recognize in my heart as this warning sign that that's happening. And sometimes I pay attention and sometimes I don't, but that's a much subtler thing, but it's something that I come to recognize it like, Oh, like this specific sin, this is a thing that precedes it in my heart. And, and recognizing and naming those things can really help you to then say I need to kind of be on my guard. I need to engage vigilantly with this right now.
1: Another habit is to make sure that you are living in community. Every week you are worshiping with God's people. You will have meaningful relationships, maybe a small group, maybe an accountability group, nothing wrong with those, nothing automatically right about those either, but community does help us change. So, Uh, Hebrews 3 tells us to exhort one another to keep from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so I do think that just rings so true to my experience. When we're away from people, we become hardened. And it's easier to assume things about... Uh, you know, about people and it's easier to just stay away. It's easier just to keep on sinning. It's easier to keep living this life. And I'm very mindful of this, this last year of our pandemic, when so many of us had to be disengaged, uh, whether we were forced to, or we chose to. And, you know, I think a lot of people are hardened right now. And maybe there's a lot of sin in our lives right now, because we've been so disconnected from each other.
0: Yeah. Community really works both on the heart and on habits when it's done well. And let me just say that this about that. It can look different ways, but I really do think there is value in having people that you can talk to about stuff that you're struggling with. And honestly, the main way to do that is by taking somebody that you're close to. I mean, if you don't have anybody that you're close to, then you need to develop some relationships first, but take somebody that you're friends with who loves Jesus and just be like, hey, here's the thing I want to work on. Can we talk through this and and work through it with them? And it doesn't have to be the deepest, most shameful thing that you're struggling with. Although arriving at a place where you feel like you can share, not, you know, not stand up and announce to the congregation that that's the the thing, but, you know, have a friend or two that you can talk to and find support. That's a freeing place to be. It's a place that really helps you experience the gospel. And it's just very practically useful in terms of that struggle.
1: Yeah, the last one I'll mention, this is just totally personal, specific, uh, but it's been very helpful for me, which is a particular life of examining prayer. We mentioned the means of grace, reading scripture, praying, but in particular, this type of praying has been really helpful for me in overcoming sin. And what do I mean by that? Prayer that helps you think about the previous 24 hours of your life and examine it before the Lord. And again, there are methods for this. There's models for this. The prayer of examine of St. Ignatius, um, there is no law about doing examining prayer in scripture. However, what I've found is when I live my life before the face of God, try to bring things before him, then I I notice more and more that my life is with him. And there's a real sense of joy and presence with him that helps overcome sin. That's good. Great. We're going
0: to go ahead and leave the discussion there as we always do then to wrap up the episode. We're going to talk about what's good. Something disconnected from our discussion that we just had, some concrete thing that we are finding good, true, beautiful in the world, something we're glad that God has made. So, Gray, what's been good for you this last few weeks?
1: I want to talk about this because I think that Eric and I probably have different preferences on this. So I want to talk tonight about study music. So what music you listen to when you're in the zone, uh, when you're okay. focusing on something? I listen
0: to electronic and epic metal.
1: I know because I heard you the other day doing that. <laughs> no, I want to recommend something you can find on Spotify. When I study, I have to have music, but, and when I say study, any kind of focused, you know, area of your life, but whenever I'm in the zone, I'm listening to music and I can't be able to recognize the words. That's, that's the big thing for me. So, but, most instrumental music is terrible so i wanna recommend sacred treasures it's a really dorky name there's 3 volumes on spotify and what it is is it's sacred music but it's all in russian and uh, so <laughs> occasionally i occasionally i'll understand you know gloria or you know mm-hmm. um something like that hallelujah uh, and for that one moment i lose my distraction but for the most part i can't understand a word they're saying but i've learned the melodies behind them Beautiful, sacred music. Uh, so let me just play you a little clip right now. sacred treasures. And if you're listening to this and you go to New Valley Church or you otherwise listen, you're one of those millions of people that listen to my sermon podcast every week. Then <laughs> you have listened to a sermon that has been composed during the sacred treasure ritual.
0: Yeah, I, I I actually vary it up a lot. One of the most effective things for me when I'm writing or kind of cranking out content is really, really loud punk and metal music And I guess you can't really understand the words because of how distorted and screamed they are, but cranked up all the way to kind of drown out every distraction. The only dilemma I face is that there are times when I'm working in the office at church and I need to not have headphones on because I need to hear if somebody comes by or something when I do kind of wonder about the impression that that's giving people that are dropping by the office or whatever. This has been Simply Faithful. We're so glad that you've joined us. If you appreciated this conversation, we'd love it if you shared it with someone else or kept the discussion going outside
1: of this podcast. Follow us on Instagram. We are at Simply Faithful Pod. We're also on Facebook. We also have a website, simplyfaithful.org. We'd love to see you online.
0: With that said, my name is Eric. I'm Gray. And this has been Simply Faithful.